Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, your source for breaking news, business trends, and economic forecasts here and abroad that impact one-third of America's economy. And now your hosts, Lou Weiss and Tim Grady. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. I'm Tim Grady, and Lou Weiss is out on assignment. So I'm going to be chatting with Dr. Chris Keel, who is a senior correspondent on economics with Manufacturing Talk Radio. He also is a managing partner with Armada Corporate Intelligence. I suggest you check out that website and find out what Chris can do for you, particularly if you happen to have a nonprofit, a .org like the Fabricators and Manufacturers Association International or the Forging Industry Association or the National Association of Credit Managers, all of whom Dr. Keel works with. Uh, largely is their chief economist and is always here to share with us the latest credit manager index report and other things that are happening in the economy. Chris, welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. All right. Thanks very much. And, and you and I both know that Lou is on a street corner someplace selling hand sanitizer at about $100 an ounce. Um, <laughs> he, he always has been a very enterprising gentleman <laughs> Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, let's start with the credit managers index. I, I kind of get the feel that, and you tell me whether that I'm wrong because you've been doing this for quite some time, that the CMI operates in a fairly uh, narrow range somewhere between 47 and 54, and it doesn't have some of the wild swings we see in the ISM that can go into the high 60s and low 30s. Right. <laughs> Yeah, we have a little less of that volatility. Now, we have seen times when the index has been radically low and radically high. Back when we had the 2008-2009 recession, we were seeing numbers in the 30s, and so we knew there was a serious issue. And what was more significant is that we were seeing those numbers really before anybody else did, um, mostly because one of the first indicators of problems back then was that LIBOR was going nuts. I mean, the normally extremely low LIBOR rate was 10 or 15 times what it normally was, and that affected the credit managers. We've also seen times when it has been higher than the mid-50s. We don't normally get into the 60s, but we've seen months where 55, 56, 57 even has been the norm. Now, we haven't seen that for a while. The good news this month is that we trended back up slightly uh, in some important categories. We really stayed almost exactly the same as we had been the month before. There was very little movement. Um, That which there was was fairly easily explained. And as people who are familiar with this, and, and why wouldn't you be at such a popular tool, we separate things into favorables and unfavorables. And the favorable factors have all been in the high 50s, low 60s, very strong numbers, and that's been going on for a couple of years now. The damage is usually in the unfavorable factors, things like bankruptcies and accounts out for collection and disputes and things that make your credit manager's life miserable. Last month, those did not look too bad. We were seeing pretty good numbers, even some recovery in things like dollar collections and the like. 
what will be interesting is watching next month and see if any of this coronavirus stuff is going to have an impact on what's going on with the credit managers. We suspect that it will. We suspect that we're going to see problems because of the supply chain disruptions. We're probably also going to start seeing some reaction in the retail sector. Um, the big question is is kind of how much. Right now, all the data that we're looking at, the job numbers that came out, that's all kind of the world before COVID-19. <laughs> Next month, yes, it'll be, right. wow, now what does the world look like now that we've had, had this outbreak and everyone is going to be looking at the numbers going, wow, it looked so good the 1st of March. What happened? Um, and, then, <laughs> and then we'll we'll patiently explain that you know disease happened and overreaction happened and here we are. Well, you and I were talking uh, just before the show on this reporting on the coronavirus that's in the the media at this point, uh, as if it is the Spanish flu back in 1918. Exactly. Completely ignoring the the flu, the current flu, has done far more damage and sickness right. and death than than this coronavirus has done. And yeah, media seems to be that, scaring the hell out of people. It, it's one of those situations where we, I mean, we were talking earlier before the show started, there were 600,000 deaths from the flu last year in the world. I mean, so... The numbers we're talking about with coronavirus are not even anywhere near that. What is concerning the medical profession and people who are trying to study this rationally is that there's too many things about COVID-19 that we don't really know yet, and that makes us nervous. Um, we don't really know how long it lasts outside the human host. We don't really know how it's being spread. You know, we are fairly fairly certain that we know the details but but we're not absolutely certain and it's that unknown that drives some of the hysteria as we learn more about it i suspect we're going to have a peak to this hysteria and then things will begin to to settle down um we'll if we're lucky and if it follows patterns similar to like SARS and MERS and the other things we've had in the past. It peaks in the winter. It begins to fade when the weather gets warmer. Um, we will begin to understand better what it takes to acquire the disease. I mean, not to oversimplify, but it's essentially a cold. And for most right. people that get it, that's all it is. And that's part of what made it so virulent is we all know what happens when someone shows up with a cold. 20 minutes later, everybody has a cold. And <laughs> and people right now are like, oh, I don't have anything weird. I just have a cold. You know, what's the big deal? And so we go to work and we get on airplanes and we do what we normally do. And we leave a swath of infected people. <laughs> so yes. anyone who has children knows how that works. Little oh, Johnny wow. comes home from school, and by the end of the week, the entire neighborhood has a cold. <laughs> so. <laughs> so true. Chris, you mentioned in your uh, comments, uh, LIBOR, and I know that right. there has been some controversy around LIBOR manipulation. I, I wonder if you mm -hmm. could give our listeners, you know, this is kind of off-top 
topic, but I think it's it's pertinent. The genesis of this Libor controversy and where it is right. today. Yeah, I mean, Libor is something that nobody in their right mind would pay any attention to unless you're in banking. Um, it's the London interbank rate, and what it boils down to is the rate that banks charge each other for short-term loans. And by short-term, I mean hours. Um, the banks will frequently borrow money overnight, even just for a few hours, to cover something that they have done. They don't want to necessarily hold all of this money, but if they do a big deal or if depositors have requested a lot of money, they will borrow from each other. And that loan rate is extremely low. It is like one quarter of a point, one fifth of a point. And it's really just a transaction fee. When there's a lot of risk in the environment, that rate begins to go up and banks start to get nervous about loaning even to each other in a very short-term fashion. And back in 2008, the LIBOR rate got up as high as 4%, which was just astronomically high. And what that does is lock down bank lending because banks are like, I'm not going to pay 4% for a loan for like a day. And so all of a sudden, there's, there's less access to money. The Fed recently has been intervening in the overnight markets, putting more liquidity in there, trying to help the banks avoid a crisis like this. The reason LIBOR is now back in the news is, are we going to see another adjustment in LIBOR rates because of the COVID-19 situation? And so far, no. And there are alternatives to playing with LIBOR now. So if you're a bank and you don't like the LIBOR system, you can use a different one. So it's it doesn't have it's not quite as as indicative as it might have been in the past because there are alternatives um, which there didn't used to be. But for the average person, it's like I don't want to know any of this. It's it comes down to <laughs> are the banks fluid enough, liquid enough that they can handle the requests that I make. So if you're a company and you're like, okay, I need to buy a bunch of machines. I need to get credit. I need to be able to do this. Is the bank going to be able to handle me? And if the bank can't get a decent rate for an overnight borrow, they might not be able to. And so they'll come back to you and say, yeah, I'd love to help you, man, but I can't get access to the funds that I need. So tough luck. So that's the only reason a manufacturer would worry about LIBOR is to make sure that their banks are, are healthy. And what they need to do is simply ask the bank and say, hey, buddy, if I need to get money from you, can you do it? And then they'll either say yes or no. <laughs> so you'll either keep that bank or get another one. <laughs> so what was the manipulation between the banks? Was that to suppress the rate? I think what was happening with the banks is they were trying to influence LIBOR, try to make sure that those rates would stay very low, even though there was quite a bit of risk uh, and still continues to be risk in the system. The banks don't want to pay any more interest than they have to, just like everybody else. And as a result, they were trying to kind of push and prod and and make LIBOR more cooperative. Um, It's not necessarily skullduggery, but it's it's just trying to make their world a little safer, 
even though maybe the world isn't as safe as they would like it to be. Um, our protection as consumers is that if the banks are being realistic about the risks out there, then they're going to be realistic about who they lend money to. And the banks right now are being a little bit too risky. Um, this has been part of the problem with very low interest rates, and that makes people nervous. If you listen to the hawks at the Fed level, that's the main reason they don't want to see rates go any lower. Is they said, look, banks are being high risk already. Let's not make it even worse. So are the credit managers likely to say, gee, I don't think I'm going to extend you credit because COVID-19 is out there? There's a little bit of that going on only because of the supply chain uh, implications. The credit managers are looking at some of the applications going, okay, you want to borrow money, you want trade credit to purchase machines or inventory, you want to purchase that inventory from a country that's having difficulty meeting that demand. So I don't know that I want to extend you credit because the supply chain is, is cracked right now. Or they're getting requests from credit that it's from a company that is experiencing a downturn. Like, for example, the credit managers are now very nervous about the airline industry and anything connected to the airline industry because they know it's been hit hard already and is probably going to get hit even harder. The airliners are referring to this as a 9-11 style gut punch where suddenly people are like, I'm not going to fly. I'm afraid to fly. And it's like, no, no, get on the plane. It's a giant Petri dish. You've been getting exposed to flu for years. You know, don't panic now. Um, just eat your pretzels and shut up. Um, but that it makes the credit managers a little bit nervous. If it's another sector, um, they're not that concerned. Um, their healthcare is still booming for obvious reasons, and, and automotive is still strong. A little bit of concern on the energy side because the demand for oil is down per rail prices in the 40s now. Um, but mostly it's, it's kind of indirect concern. They're not worried about the virus per se. They're worried about what it's doing to the supply chain. Okay. I have to believe that the cruise ship industry is going to take a hit, but not just because of COVID-19, but because they – seem to be a petri dish for a number of viruses that are captured in a nice, warm, salty, moist environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty excited about this because I'm actually doing a presentation on a cruise ship next week. Um, this group is, <laughs> is, is, does its, its annual meeting on a cruise ship, and I'm like, okay, fine, I'm going to come out of my cabin long enough to give the talk, and then I'm going to go right back into my cabin, bathe myself on hand sanitizer, and wait until we dock. Um, <laughs> and it's just, and like, and hope to God that nobody has this, and I get quarantined for the next six months. Um, but, yeah, the cruise ship industry is, is very concerned. Anything that is entertainment-based, travel-based, schools are concerned. Um, it's... It, one of the doctors that was discussing this says, welcome to the world of medical care by lawyers. Everyone is very worried about the liability. Um, so if you are in a school situation, 
even if you think it's a relatively minor thing. Well, as one kid gets sick and you're facing a lawsuit, um, one employer that sends an employee against their will to Seattle is going to be a subject to a lawsuit. And so people are being very protective in that regards. The cruise ship industry may also sort of be setting the tone because the instructions that I've been getting is that before they're going to let me on the ship, they're going to take my temperature. If I have been to Asia in the last two weeks, I can't get on. If I am Asian, I can't get on. Um, if I even look like I can spell COVID-19, I can't get on, um, you know, so it's, and there's discussion that maybe we'll start doing that as part of TSA screening. So (laughs) yeah, I'm just, I'm just kind of thinking, okay, you know, there are all kinds of ways to take one's temperature and there's one in particular, I hope they don't start using so. <laughs> right. Well, I understand that the Louvre shut down because the employees mm-hmm. do not want to be sent in to man the museum. Right. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if you can call it manning a museum anymore. Maybe it's peopling a museum. Yeah, I uh, think so. Because of the virus. Right. I mean, and I think that 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 will be a bigger threat to a lot of businesses that employees are are going to vary in terms of their concerns. Some of them are going to be very, very worried. Others are going to be completely unconcerned. I have really started to see some radically different positions, people who are not concerned and are worried about the impact on their livelihood are furious with those that are overly concerned and said, look, you know, I know you're concerned about getting this, but you're destroying the business that I rely on for an income, and I'm going to be a lot more threatened by having to live in a dumpster than I am by what's going on with the virus. So there's social implications, there's political implications, no one really has a handle on this until, as I said, it kind of reaches a peak and then starts to tail off, which... Apparently it has in China. Um, To the degree we can trust Chinese data, it seems to have hit its peak and is now beginning to recede. It seems to have done that in South Korea as well, and their data is a little more reliable. So we'll just have to see. Yes, for the first time I'm watching the Kaishen and the CLFP, which is the official Chinese uh, Purchasing Managers Index report mm-hmm. come up with numbers in the 40s and 30s and going, those may have been the honest numbers all along, but yeah, at least yeah, now they're much. reporting. <laughs> and, and one of the things that we need just to remember about China is that they were able to have the response they have because it's a very state-controlled society and people were ordered to stay home. I mean, some of the reports were, were very... I mean, talk about futuristic. They were using drones to identify people who had left their apartments or left work, and the drone would come down and order you back to your apartment and take your picture and basically tell you, we have your picture, we know who you are, go home. And and so they could enforce this. They can also enforce going back to work. And that's now what they're starting to do. They're basically telling people the crisis is over, get back to work. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but 
the Chinese are saying, we need you to go back to work, so go back to work. Yeah, their economy is going to take a significant hit, and of course... Oh, it has already, the, yeah. yeah. All of the countries that are tied into China as a supplier... Right, including the, and that's the US pretty much everybody, some, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the U.S. gets some 20 antibiotics from a single source in China. <laughs> Not a good right. thing. No, and it's and it's something that is just reminding us again, as if we needed it, that we live in a global economy. And one of the outcomes, I think, between this and the tariffs and the all the sort of trade issues we had last year, the watchword for companies going forward, and I heard this at the most recent FMA meetings, which I was just at two days ago. Everyone is now talking diversification of supply chain. You know, it used to be very efficient to have one reliable supplier, and that's still very efficient. But now people are going to say, I need multiple suppliers. I am going to need to start warehousing more often. I'm going to need to make sure I have inventory on hand. This kind of disruption is is not going to be unusual. This year, it's COVID-19. It might be something else next year. So I think we're beginning to enter the, the age of, yeah, 12 suppliers and six continents. <laughs> so. Right. <laughs> well, it's interesting, Chris, because over the years, I have watched the supply chain and corporations who who vacillate between go single source, press for price, mm-hmm. go single source, and then three years later, if they diversify the supply chain, right. and, and, and they just flip back, flop back and forth, of course, it's in response to issues like this. It is, because, I mean, there's no getting around the fact that if you do a single source, it's more efficient. It's easier to manage. Um, you have a relationship with that supplier. You can get good prices. I mean, everybody would love to basically say, gosh, I source everything from my best friend, and it's just great. But, you know, the world constantly reminds us that it's not that easy, and we end up with – I mean, if you just trace the last 10 to 15 years, it's COVID-19 this year. It's been SARS. It's been MERS. It's been the Zika virus. It's been terrorism. It's been an earthquake in Japan. It's been hurricanes. It's been forest fires. I mean, something happens on an almost daily basis that, oh, well, that was my really efficient supplier, and they just slid off the side of the earth into the sea. Um, right. What do I do now? And so you are forced to diversify, but then all of a sudden you have the balance of, well, you're not the most important customer anymore. They have multiple customers. You have multiple sources. You now have people flying all over the world trying to manage this instead of just sending them to one place. It's complicated, and companies would rather not do it, but they just don't have a choice. And I think the days of believing in single source maybe have come to an end. It has been fascinating to watch the supply chain um, personnel who used to be in a dark corner of the basement being rapidly <laughs> yeah. elevated towards the C-suite these days. Yeah, they're being carried in in those sedan chairs with minions. You know, it's kind of like, yeah, oh, right. oh, exalted freight manager, what shall we do? It's like, do not worry. I have found a supplier in a country that you didn't even know existed. <laughs> so. yeah, <right. laughs> 
So, you know, if, if this thing does peak as it may have peaked in China, and certainly the weather at some point will warm. I know you're in Kansas City. Uh, right. I'm in G- Georgia. I did not expect to have the same weather in Georgia as you're having in Kansas City. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but eventually it's got to warm up, and we'll see if this virus croaks. Right. Yeah, it, it it is. If it behaves like the other viruses, that that will be the the case. And also, it it changes people's behavior. I mean, it's any of these viruses are more virulent when people are packed together, which is why there's concern about crowds and airplanes and cruise ships and schools because you concentrate people. The weather gets warm, we're not as concentrated. Windows open, things like that. So that is part of the pattern. Um, the other issue, of course, is that as people get an understanding of it, eventually it always comes down to personal behavior. Right now, people are starting to realize that, look, if you feel sick, you think you have a cold, flu, whatever, just stay home and and don't risk passing around anybody. You know, two, three weeks ago, people wouldn't have thought twice. You know, we just go to work anyway and muscle through it. Now I'm hearing people saying, well, I don't feel great. I don't really need to go in. Um, I can do this from home. I'm going to be on the safe side. And once we all start behaving that way and washing our hands and doing all that stuff, I mean, one nice thing is that, you know, I have never seen so many men washing their hands in airport bathrooms in my life. It's like, oh, my God, I've been (laughs) waiting. You know, it's like. To be absolutely honest, gentlemen, I've been wanting you to do this for a very long time. Um, so <laughs> it's nice that you now are. Um, and once our behaviors change a little bit, then that also affects the transmission. So unless there's some unexpected development that, that we've heretofore not been aware of, I think it'll follow those same patterns. And in some respects, it has not been as virulent it has not affected young people which is is unusual all the other viruses do and whether it's flu cold whatever kids are our major targets they haven't been this time this is really going after a specific group of the elderly and people with somehow compromised lung and and respiratory systems i mean if you're a smoker COVID-19 is yet another reason not to be a smoker. <laughs> so. Yes. Well, there's been, of course, as you know, some conversation was just cooked up in a lab uh, just north of Wuhan and it somehow <laughs> got out. But I don't think you create a biological weapon to kill soldiers over the age of 70 with asthma. <laughs> Exactly. You know, and it's like, it's also that that sort of long lead time. It's like, okay, we've struck a blow in about six weeks. These people will be (laughs) incapacitated. Um, Well, yeah. Um, And particularly, yeah, since it doesn't seem to affect electronics, uh, I think it's not much of a, yeah, the the conspiracy theorists are are just, uh, holy cow. You know, you listen to some of these people and it's like, I'm surprised there isn't a shortage of aluminum foil because they're all trying to wear it on their heads right now. So. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, Chris, I'd ask you about, you know, what's the economy looking like in the next 90 days, but boy, all of those cars are off the table and, and we're putting yeah, pickup sticks on the floor. <laughs> I think, and I think the interesting thing, though, and this is what's kind of giving me some some optimism for the rest of the year, 
all the data that we've been receiving right up to this point has been really strong. I mean, the latest job report, 273,000 jobs pre-COVID-19, of course. But everything we were seeing was looking at a positive, developing, stronger economy. The majority of economists now are predicting that by midsummer, late summer, there will be a rather dramatic resurgence in recovery. Demand is still there. This is a supply-created recession, which is why the stuff that's been tried so far, lowering interest rates and increasing spending, hasn't had any impact because this never was right. a demand issue. It's, it's a supply issue. Once the supply starts coming back in and people relax and start, there's going to be a lot of making up for lost time. Um, the conferences that have been canceled, are, are, they're all being postponed. They're not being canceled, but it's like, okay, we still need to do this. We still need to have this trade show. We're going to wait and do it in June. We're going to wait and do it in July. So we may end up having a much busier summer than we anticipated, but I think I think this will be a two or three month episode upon which we will kind of return to normal. Well, we all look forward to that, Chris, and I certainly appreciate you joining us again on Manufacturing Talk Radio to reassure our listeners that uh, you're correct. The flu was far more devastating last year and continues to be a thorn on our side this year. And we'll just have to see where COVID-19 ends up when the temperature is 65 degrees. Yep, exactly. So, you know, we'll just, I'll, I'll just sign off by saying that I've got to go blow my nose and sneeze now. Um, but <laughs> so, no, I'm, I'm, I'm still healthy. And, and uh, so I'm looking forward to my cruise. <clears throat> yes, I am. <laughs> yes. So. And after you go off the air and we finish the show, I'm going to dip my microphone in some disinfectant from all your coughing. There you go. <laughs> and, and see, see how well Lou has done with his, with his, street stand of hand sanitizer. So, all right. <laughs> right. Okay. Thanks Thank again, you, Chris. We'll talk in another another month. <laughs> Very <laughs> good. I always look forward to it. Thanks. And we've been speaking with Dr. Chris Keel, who is a senior correspondent for Manufacturing Talk Radio. And as I spoke of at the top of the show, he is also involved with many nonprofits as their uh, lead economist. And he does a terrific job at conferences. He's speaking at dozens of them, conferences and meetings all over the country. So he is somebody who is well worth listening to, and you can find him at MFGTalkRadio.com on Manufacturing Talk Radio, where we have some 400 shows. And as always, for all of our listeners, we appreciate you turning tuning in, and we look forward to your visiting our news reports that we put out, and our articles, and the Manufacturing Outlook magazine that we publish every month. And as always, thank you for listening to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.